Well, good morning. You can be seated, and as you do, Merry Christmas. Tis the season. Can you believe it's December already? Because I can't. This is incredible. It's December. There's no snow. So if you are thinking about complaining today, you just better hold that thought and tighten your lips because most of the time this time of month or this time of year, there's a lot of snow out there, isn't there? It's a lot colder. So let's celebrate the fact that it's not super cold out there. And uh, it's going to snow eventually, I hope, because I actually do love snow. It's good to be with you guys today. I haven't seen you in a long time. Thank you so much for having me back. My wife and I have been, uh, this has been our busiest year of ministry ever. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to tell you a bunch, but I do want to say thank you. Because you just having us come actually helps support us do what we do. And even though we are here to pour into you, it's kind of a dual thing. And I just want to say thank you for all that you do to help us do what we do. Two months ago, we got back from Brazil. That was an incredible time at the crusade. There was over 5,000 people a night. Churches were doubling, some tripled in size from all the new people getting saved. Because I don't know about you, I'm really tired of churches growing because one church is failing. I want to see churches grow because the lost are coming to know Jesus. That's what I like to see. And then we had kind of a surprise this year. Austin, Texas opened up. There's a bunch of business guys down there that decided they want to change their city. And so six months of prep work, we've been going back and forth between Austin, Texas. We just did our first event down there. And, and I'm not saying this for drama effect. I'm saying this because it's so exciting to see what God is doing. I can honestly tell you, demons came out, people were healed, people got saved, the, the believers were encouraged, and now we're going back in March to do it again. Thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. I'm so excited what God is doing, because it's not just overseas, it's also here in America. Have, how many of you here came to our Night of Hope event in October? That's what I thought. Y'all are in big trouble. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. But if you ever want to come to one of those events, I want to tell you what you will experience as a believer. You will come and experience some worship, some preaching, and then lots of different kinds of ministry where we want to pray for you. Because when you hear stories about things happening overseas and in other states, I want to encourage you, it was happening right here in Brainerd, Minnesota, just a couple months ago. There was people that were healed, there were people that were saved, and there were demons that came out in Brainerd, Minnesota. Praise the Lord. I'm so excited. So if you're ever thinking, man, is God moving in this area, praise the Lord for this church that has enough faith to do things like pray for healing or, or, or whatever it takes that you need in your life. But I'm also thankful that a church like this supports people like us that really stick our necks out on the line on some of those topics to go create a spiritual hospital for those that need ministry to come to. So for what it's worth, thank you. you what you support, you don't always get to see. And I want you to hear just a little bit of that fruit. Now, today, we're going to have a little bit of fun. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to tell you, I, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to tell you what I would title this message. And for any of you that have any kind of experience in the prosperity gospel, you're going to freak out. Don't freak out. You're going to be okay. I, the title of this message is, What to Do to Not Miss the Blessings of God. Now, we all know that God blesses people. 
Some of us kind of make the blessings the idol versus God the idol, but we're not going to deal with that today. What we're going to deal with today is that we have the capability to put things on that open the door for blessings to come or to close that door. Now, what I mean by that is that there are blessings of God that he gives unconditionally and blessings he gives conditionally. It, both are true. That's why you can't pin it down in the word of God and say, well, it's always this or it's always that, because both are true. And I'm going to show it to you. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. Now, let me just pause for a second and ask you a question that I don't actually want you to answer out loud. Who makes the choice there to set their mind on things above? Does God force you to do it or do you have the choice to do it? The answer is obvious because he's telling us to do it. You set your mind on things above. Now, let me ask you the question. How good are we at doing that? Be, be honest with yourself. Don't judge that person or that person. You look inward and say, man, how good am I at setting my mind on things above? Just be honest with yourself. Take a survey of your heart because that's a, not just a request, but kind of a command from the Apostle Paul to all of us. For he goes on to say in verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, the, the next verse is very important, but I want to pause here for a second to just point out the very obvious that Paul is trying to say, set your mind on things above. So I'm not against earthly blessings and, and finances and houses and cars and things like that. And I don't think Paul was either. But the blessings that we're mostly talking about here are the things that come from above. Set your mind on things above because then you won't hold on to the things of the earth very tightly. When your mind is set on things above, you can be as blessed as possible on this planet, but you won't hang on to it very tightly because your focus is there. You can also be in this world and not have very many of those so-called earthly blessings and still be just as blessed to set your mind on things above. But the choice is yours. Because a lot of us get stuck on this comparison game to, uh, well, I'm not as blessed as them, or I'm not as far as that person at that age saving for retirement or whatever. I want you to just take a moment and think, have you thought about the things above? Now let's keep reading, because the, the next thing is also important. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want to point out the fact here that we, again, have that choice. Paul is not talking to unbelievers in that statement. He's talking to us. Now, now let, let us read that again in terms of looking at our own life, because he said, you set your mind on things above, you put to death what is earthly in you. So that's a choice we have to make. You're already saved. You've given your life to Jesus. You're going to heaven. But now you have a choice what behaviors you're going to practice. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we play this weird game where we think that God predestines everything and God chooses you to do that and, and that none of that is true. God actually gives you the choice and the invitation. 
He says, you do this. I'm giving you the power to do this, but you're the one that actually has to put it into practice. You're the one that's got to set your mind on things above. You're the one that gets to choose to crucify your flesh. Now, the reason this is important is because we've entered a day and age once again in the church where the devil is upping his game and we are lowering our game, where we think the answer to church growth is actually comforting people in their sin instead of saving them from it. Now, you can do that in a super judgmental way, or you can do it in a desperate attempt to save them. Why? Because it says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, and idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It is coming. Meaning it's not here yet. And just because you can enjoy a season right now called grace does not mean that the wrath is not coming. And what we need to understand is that those that are living in a sinful lifestyle flippantly and they don't care and they think they're taking advantage of the grace of God, we need to have a sobriety spiritually that understands that the wrath of God is coming because of those very things. That we, we love and enjoy the grace of God, but we need to understand that the wrath of God is also very real and equally powerful, and it is coming. That day is coming when the wrath of God will be revealed and released on the entire earth called the Great Tribulation. And it will not end well for those who practice sin flippantly, thinking that they can avoid the wrath of God. It's very important that we as the church understand that it's not our position to go and judge the world in terms of feeling like we're better than them, but it is our job to go and try to save the world by evangelizing them with the gospel and calling them from that place of sin into a place of repentance so they can be saved from the wrath that is to come. Now, you can disagree with me on some of the, the things for the end times and the tribulation if you want, but you can't disagree with what is point blank on this page, that the, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Next, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its image of the Creator. For here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now many of you have heard this preached at weddings. You've heard this because it's all about, yeah, you got to take off the old self and put on the new self. Well, newsflash, no one's getting married in here today, so let's apply this to us. What he's saying is that once again, the ball is in our court. There are things that we can choose to take off and things that we choose to take on. And this is part of the meat of where I want to get to. That there are things that if you don't choose to take them off, you will block the blessings God wants to send your way. And if there are things you don't choose to put on, you will also block the blessings God wants to send your way. And those are 100% your choice. I do professional counseling every Friday for 10 hours 
And this conversation often goes on repeat where people think they're the victim of God's will and they have a horrifying revelation when they come to grips with they're there by the decisions they've made. And we need to be honest with ourselves that where we are today in part has to do with the decisions that we have made. I'm not taking away from the sin people have performed against you, but what I am saying is what you did with that, the way you reacted, that was all your choice. Let's be honest with ourselves. And when we we look at this with sobriety, we begin to see that once again we have another choice being presented to take off the old self, which is anger, malice, wrath, greed, idolatry. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say, yeah, you should probably practice those things. I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's no one in here to be like, yeah, you should for sure practice being greedy. I mean, that sounds great, doesn't it? No one in here would do that, at least not in their right mind. And then there's another list here that he asks us to put on. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Don't we understand that this is a choice to put on? That even though you've been saved, you're redeemed, you've been bought with the blood of Jesus, Paul is saying now you've got some work to do. You get to choose to partner with the, the plan of God for sanctification, to become more like Jesus, more like the image of the creator who we were created in. Verse 10. Now let me read to you what happens next. He says, and above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, this is kind of a side trail, rabbit trail. I'm going to give you this one for free. The rest you have to pay for. But I'm a musician, as you can tell, and my friend Colton and Jamie, they're musicians. And I love it when Paul brings up musical language because it makes a little more sense to me. How many people in this place are mu- musical at, in any way? All right, we got three. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> no wonder this place doesn't have its own choir. <laughs> I'm kidding. So... What, what we need to understand is when you think about harmony, have you guys ever seen the Teen Challenge Choir? Anyone seen that? Now, how many, I'm not mocking them, but how many of you have heard some of those guys sing alone without the choir? And you're like, oh, I'm not so sure he should have the mic right now because it's not, it's not awesome. But what's interesting is you put him in the mix of everyone else and it sounds amazing. Isn't it interesting that even someone whose voice does not sound great on their own, when it's added to the rest and it's put in complete harmony, it makes a different noise that it couldn't make on its own. You see, we sometimes we make this, this weird distinction in the body of Christ that my job is to turn you into me, and that, that, that's not how this works. When someone walks through those doors with tattoos and long hair and they rode their motorcycle in, my job is not to turn them into me. My job is actually to make them more like Jesus. And what's interesting about music is if everybody's saying baritone, if everybody's saying bass, if everybody's saying soprano, then it wouldn't really be a harmony, would it? But what's interesting is even if you're a really good singer on your own, you're fantastic, when you take that voice and you put it with all the other voices, all the other tones, all the other things, and you put it together, it makes a unique sound that could never be made on its own. And what Paul is saying is this. 
that when we put on love, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. That when we in this room begin to put on love, the way I love may look a little different than the way you do, but when we all put it on together, it creates this beautiful sound of worship, this harmony to the God that we say we love. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a harmony that can only come from more than one person doing it at the same time in slightly different ways to create something totally new. I don't care who you are. That's pretty cool. Now, the one thing that I want to bear down on here when Paul says to put on, I'm going to focus in on one thing. And you might be really surprised by this because he says to put on humility. Now, let me just put this out there right at the the get-go. If you refuse to put on humility, you're going to discover that its opposite often takes its place, which is pride. And for many of us, we, we want to be humble. We think that just because we're saved, we automatically become humble. But the Bible would actually say the opposite, that becoming humble is a choice. That's why the Bible often says, humble yourself before the Lord. Be humble. It's a choice that we have to make to humble ourselves. And when we humble ourselves, it opens up doors for blessings to come, whereas pride closes those doors. If you don't believe me, go try it and then come back here in two weeks and let me know how it went for you. Because let me show you one example in Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that is given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You know, what's interesting is it doesn't matter what Jesus did outside of the city that they heard about. All that mattered is that to them, he was from that city, and they knew him prior, and they only judged him based on prior. Now, for those of us that have ever felt what that's like to be judged, where you you go and you do something, and you feel like you're growing, and then you come back home, whether that's your hometown or your physical home where your family is, you ever feel judged like they just keep you down here instead of saying, Wow, you've all grown up. We all have that relative that treats you like you're still in diapers and they just changed it yesterday. We all know what that feels like, right? We all know what it feels like to be judged in that way that no matter who you are or what you've done, you come home and they're like, oh, that's just him. I I remember what he did in school back in the day and and I know the failures and and the the things he's done and and how his business shut down a couple times. We, We judge people for that thing And when we do that, we shut the door to receive from them. That's really important. When you judge someone based off the past, you shut the door to receive from them in the future or in the present. Now, who's the one suffering? You are. Because the last time I checked, God does do things independently of us, but more often than not, he chooses to use human vessels who
who want to partner with him to do things. Did this church build itself? No. Did God, could God have just spoken a word and this place became a building? Absolutely. But he chose to use human vessels. And when we understand that if I judge you based off your past, I will close the door through pride to receiving from you now. Now, let me just ask you that question, because this is an interesting phrase when it says, and they took offense at him. Instead of them saying, wow, Jesus, we've heard about some of the cool things you've done, and wow, this is kind of different, because we've never seen you do that before. We would like to see it here. Instead of saying that, they began to judge him. And, and here's the crazy thing. Because Jesus was perfect, it's not like they could say, well, remember when Jesus uh, had to uh, do a discipline or he got spanked for being bad or he mouthed off to his mom. They couldn't hold any of that against him. And if they couldn't hold a perfect person's past against him, what hope do we have? I mean, just be honest with yourself. And so we understand that these guys are, and ladies are watching Jesus and the first thing they think about is, who does he think he is? Isn't that Jesus? The son of Mary, because we all know he's not really the son of Joseph. There was some funny business going on there. And we all know that those are his brothers right there and his sisters are over here. Who does he think he is that he can leave this city and come back and think that he's this big shot who wants to come minister to all of us? Who, who does he think he is that he can do that and come here and think that he has the audacity to minister to someone like us when we're older than him, we're more accomplished than him, we, we've been around the block more than him. Who does he think he is? And because they judged him, they shut the door to receive from him. Now let me ask the painful question. How many times have you done that very How, how many of you, if you knew me growing up, would judge me because I'm standing here preaching today? How many of you would judge your son or your daughter who came home and wanted to pray for you, but you were so prideful, you didn't want to receive from them? How many husbands and wives refuse to receive from each other because of pride. I don't want to receive from you because you are not worthy to minister to me. You see, Jesus was not being offensive. He didn't walk into the town and make a big sign and stand on the street corner and say, all y'all going to hell. That's not what he did. He walked into the town and started ministering and while he was ministering, they took, by their choice, offense at him. You see, the hard thing is that we live in a world where we think that we're walking on eggshells because if I'm offended, it's your fault. If I'm offended, it's obviously your fault because you were doing something offensive. Did you know it's actually very possible for us to be more mature than that and be around people that are even doing offensive things and we refuse to take offense at it? 
Because once again, that's our choice. That's a maturity thing. I refuse to take offense at this because even if they are trying to offend me, I'm not going to let them. I'm not going to let them play with my emotions. They're not in charge of my emotions. I am. And I refuse to take offense at something because I'm not going to give them the time of day. And here's the other thing. What if someone comes up and, and they're not trying to offend you? They're just trying to minister to you. They're trying to encourage you. They're trying to help you. And the whole time you're thinking, you're not on my level, so I've, I'm taking offense that you think you can minister to me. Now let me ask you a question. What if they were actually sent by God to minister to you? And you close the door because your pride was so great. And instead of taking your pride off and putting humility on, you missed everything God had for you in that moment. Let's be honest. If you want to play that game, you can. But I'm telling you the truth that when you wear pride, you close the door to the blessings God has for you. But when you put on humility, it opens the doors for blessings to come. I, I'm begging you, I'm begging the husbands in this place, the wives in this place to humble yourselves before the Lord, before your spouse, before your children, and say, I'm not better than you. I can receive from you, especially if it's the Lord that is operating in you. I'm begging you to carry that kind of humility. Break off that disgusting, yucky, gross pride and put on humility that looks like the creator who made us. Who does pride look like? It's not Jesus. It ain't Jesus. Look at the people that tout pride as their mantra. You want to look like that? Go for it. I'm asking you to take that garbage off and put something else on that looks like Jesus. Because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He washed the feet of his disciples. He washed the feet of people. He died for those of us who none of whom are worthy of his sacrifice. And yet we have the audacity to think we're better than anyone else. So I won't receive from you. Man, I hope this rings bells in each and every one of our hearts. Because pride is a disgusting thing. It's disgusting. It's despicable. Humility is a choice. It's a choice. And today I'm asking you to put on humility and watch how God begins to bless your life in ways you never expected. There's been many times in my life I tried to minister to someone or help someone and they wouldn't have it simply because I was younger than them. But you know what sucks? I've also been that person that I wouldn't let someone minister to me because of my disgusting pride. And if all of us in this room are honest, I'm pretty sure we know what both sides of that coin have felt like. And it's uncomfortable to admit when we're the ones at fault because we also know what it feels like to be judged. You see, Jesus, I've heard this sermon preached by other people, and, and I'm not trying to disagree with anyone. What I'm trying to say is that 
a lot of people preach this in a way of saying, see, if you don't have faith, it limits God, and, and God can't even do any miracles if you don't have faith. They're missing the point of the story. The story is not that because they didn't have faith, suddenly Jesus was drained of his power and he couldn't do anything. And if he was here in this room, he could only do it if you had some faith. Uh, no, uh, you need to let that go. Let that teaching go. The reason Jesus couldn't do anything is because they didn't want him to. They refused to receive from him. He was saying, I'll pray for you. And they said, nope, we're good. I'd rather be sick than you pray for me. Nope, we're good. I'd rather be miserable than you pray for me. Nope, I'm good. They took offense at him, and they refused to receive from him. That's why Jesus could do no works in that town. And it says in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household, and he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled at their unbelief. You know, if you read through the gospel accounts, you're going to see this word show up a few times that they marveled or they were, they were in great awe of what Jesus was doing. You know, when they cast the nets and they were breaking from all the fish, they marveled. When Jesus walked on the water, they marveled. They were marveling. In other words, their mouths are on the floor. They're so blown away by what is happening. They're marveling at the great things Jesus did. And that same word is used here, that Jesus was blown away by their unbelief. He was blown away. He wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I figured that. He was going, are you kidding me? I didn't come here asking you for anything. I came to my hometown to minister to the people that I grew up with, and you won't receive from me because I grew up here? He marveled at their unbelief. He was blown away. His mouth was on the floor. Man, I hope that if Jesus showed up in the flesh right now and he came to my house, that that is not what he would be marveling at. Because I'm hoping that my house is a house of faith that would choose to receive from a carpenter's son. I'm going to prove it to you one more way. Uh, this is the last place we'll turn, Matthew chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me because I'd love for you to see this with your own eyes so that you know I'm not lying to you. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, there's a parallel passage in Mark of this same story, and I may share some details from that account, but we don't have the time to read both. So I'm just going to tell you verse 21 of chapter 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you want a cool little nugget just for fun? I'm going to give you this one for free, too. I hope you brought your checkbooks to pay for the rest because I'm giving you some free stuff today. The free thing that I'm going to give you is this. When it says that Jesus withdrew, we need to understand he was withdrawing. The implication is I'm doing ministry. Now I'm withdrawing to rest. So if Jesus rested, so should we. And as he withdrew to rest, he withdrew outside the borders of Israel to a region called Tyre and Sidon. Now, for those of us that get really judgmental, I'm not saying you've ever done that, but if you ever do, you need to check your heart. If your pastor needs a break, give him a break. If he's at a birthday party and you're having some crisis, let him enjoy the birthday party for Pete's sake. They're allowed to have a break. 
But when pastors take a break and we have needs, we often get very judgmental of that. So don't do that. What we need to understand is Jesus is withdrawing for the purpose of resting. He's leaving the borders of Israel to go to Tyre and Sidon to rest. That's the purpose of this. He's just taking a little break. Now, why Tyre and Sidon? Uh, Let me tell you why I think this is so important. Because when Israel, back in the days of Exodus, when they left Egypt, they came into the promised land, This is kind of fun. I don't know if anyone's ever shown you this, but the the borders that God promised the nation of Israel were much bigger than what they took. They they only took a small fraction of what God had promised them. Remember, God said, Joshua, wherever your foot goes, it's yours. But there are borders on this. I'm not saying you can have the entire world from here to here to here to here. Wherever your foot goes, it's yours. They took a small sliver of that. I'm not going to take the time to go into why, but the area of Tyre and Sidon was in those original borders. It was inside of what was supposed to belong to Israel, but they never took it. It was actually an allotment to the tribe of Asher. That's kind of cool, huh? So the, the tribe of Asher was supposed to possess this district of Tyre and Sidon, but because they never took it back in the day, they didn't possess it on that day. So Jesus is now withdrawing into a place that has great racial tension, lots of racial tension, because they know this was supposed to be our land, so the Canaanite people that live here are inhabiting our land. And they would often refer to those people as dogs or, or other horrible names that they would call them. It was a big deal. It was, there was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Canaanites and the Samaritans, and we all know that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and and I I mean this respectfully, the Jews really didn't like anyone that wasn't a Jew. (laughs) They didn't like the Greeks, they didn't like the Canaanites, they didn't like anybody. They just liked the Jews, and even there there was some fuzzy stuff going on. So we need to understand that Jesus is withdrawing to a place to rest where there is great racial tension. Next in verse 22 it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now most of us would hear this story, and if you didn't know what happens next, you're probably thinking that Jesus is sitting by the bat phone waiting for it to ring. Hello, this is Jesus. You got a demon? I'm on my way. I'll be there in ten minutes. Robin, get the Batmobile. I mean, Peter, get the Bat... I mean, that's probably what they're thinking is that... And many people think pastors do that too, that like they do nothing throughout the day, Monday through Saturday. They're just sitting by the Bat phone. Hello, Pastor so-and-so, you got a crisis? I'll be there right now. That's our view of pastors a lot of times, isn't it? It shouldn't be, but it is. And when we understand that Jesus is sitting there trying to take a break and the needs of the world have not gone away, and this lady is coming with a very real need. There's nothing wrong with her saying, my daughter has a demon, and you're the only one that can help him. Uh, Man, if one of my kids was in, in, in that place and I was in her shoes, you better believe I would push over the gates of hell to get to Jesus for my own kid. I'm in no way discrediting this mother, but what I'm trying to paint the picture is why Jesus is about to respond the way he does. 
Because as this woman comes, it says she's crying out. This isn't a quiet knock at the door. Hello, is Jesus there? I'd like to make an appointment. She's outside the house crying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me, for my daughter is oppressed by a demon. But Jesus, who could clearly hear her, in verse 23 it says, he did not answer her a word. He didn't answer a word. Now, I'm just going to speak from my personal humanity. That doesn't sound very Christ-like. When you paint this image of what it means to be Christ-like, I bet it doesn't include that. Here's a woman with a daughter who needs help, and Jesus isn't even answering her. He's not saying, hey, I'm taking a break, but I'll get to it tomorrow. He's not saying, hey, go get her and bring her here. He's not, oh, I'll send Peter over there. He's not saying any of it. Instead, he's just being quiet. He's ignoring her. That doesn't sound very Christ-like. And maybe some of us need to repaint the image of what we think it means to be Christ-like. Because being Christ-like does not mean always being available to the world's crisis. Just let that sink in for a second. Being Christ-like does not mean always being available to the world's crisis. Now, if your pastors were here, they'd be silently saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And then the rest of the congregation would think that they paid me to say this, and I I truly didn't. They have no idea. But I guarantee you, they've felt that pressure before. I guarantee you they've felt that pressure. That if they're not available 24-7, that they will be judged for not being Christ-like. You know what's interesting about the silence? is that weird things begin to happen in our minds and in our hearts when it gets quiet. If you, let me prove it to you, because you might think that you're not dramatic, and I'm about to prove to you that you really are. You're more dramatic than you think, at least in your mind. When was the last time you sent a text to someone, and it was kind of important, and they didn't respond right away? And it was silent. And your mind begins to play games. Maybe you called them and left a message. And all of a sudden, you start to think. Your mind starts to play games on you. You start thinking, well, what if they think this? What, what, what if they're not responding to me because I, I, I offended them? What if they're not responding to me because they don't like me? What if this? What if that? What if that? And then next thing you know, your mind turns into a land of drama where you begin to think and invent all these different things, and you waste so much emotional energy thinking about what it could be. And when they finally respond and say, hey, sorry, I was taking a shower. I'm back. You're like, oh, whew. I wasted all that mental energy thinking that you hated my guts and what you've done that and you know it because we've all been guilty of that kind of thing where when it's silent we begin to create a narrative that probably isn't even close to the truth. Now imagine what she was going through. She's there crying out. She's putting herself in a very vulnerable spot, being a Canaanite woman who is hated by the Jews, and she's coming with nothing to offer other than saying, will you please help my daughter? And she's crying out and humbling herself, and instead of getting an answer, she gets silence. Can you imagine what was going through her head in that moment? Because I bet you it was things like, 
I knew he wouldn't answer me because Jews hate us. I knew that they wouldn't do this because I didn't bring enough money. I knew they wouldn't do this because it's too late at night. I, I knew they wouldn't do this because they don't really care about people. Jesus only cares about big crowds, and he only cares about big offerings, and, and he hates me, and he hates me because I'm a woman, and he won't help my daughter because she's a woman. And all this noise in our heads simply because it's quiet on the outside. Now let me ask you that question just a little differently. When was the last time you prayed for something earnestly and there was a period of time where you felt like God was quiet and not answering you? And you began to play out that same kind of drama in your own head. Well, obviously God isn't answering me because he doesn't care. God isn't answering me because I've been sinning too much. God isn't answering me because I haven't tithed enough. God isn't answering me because I haven't spent enough time with him. God isn't, and all of a sudden the answer comes and says, oh, you mean it was just a, a matter of timing? Oh, whew. yeah, I wasn't even worried. <laughs> How many of you have done that? Be honest with yourself. You've prayed, and when you feel like God is silent, you create a narrative that's probably nowhere near the truth. If we do it from human-to-human relationships, I guarantee you we do it between us and the Lord. We feel like God loves everyone else more than he loves us. We hear about God answering their prayers, but it's stone-cold silent when we pray. How How you handle the silence is very important because you can create a narrative that's nowhere near the truth instead of just waiting and persisting. It says Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And I don't want to pretend like I know more than I do, but I I do know a couple things in the Greek that that word send her away does not mean, oh God, just tell her to go away. What it actually implies is God, give her what she wants so she'll go away. That's the implication that Peter and James and John and all these guys are actually saying, just kick the demon out so she'll leave us alone because you're sitting in here being quiet and we're the ones experiencing all this yelling and desperation. Just give her what she wants so she'll leave us alone. We came here to rest and we just want to rest. Get rid of her. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Wow. Can you imagine your pastor saying that to you? You came to him, and you were from Crosby, and he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Crossway. That doesn't sound very Christ-like either, does it? And you know, she could interpret that in a very hateful, spiteful way, or she could understand that there is truth in that statement. Jesus was sent by the Father to Israel first. That's a true statement. He wasn't degrading her. He wasn't saying, I love you less. He was saying, I was sent. My mission statement is the borders of Israel. You're next, but not now. Not because you're less important. Not because I love you any less but because I'm obedient to the one who sent me instead of being obedient to the crisis around me. 
If I wasn't wearing my mic, I would drop it right there. I'm obedient to the one who sent me instead of being a slave to the crisis around me. You see, we often think that the need dictates the call instead of the call dictating the need you're supposed to meet. I'm going to say that again. We often think that the need dictates the call instead of the call dictating the need you're called to meet. Just because there's things I can do doesn't mean that's what God has called me to do. He has not called me to go to college and become a doctor and become a brain surgeon. Could I? Probably. But that's not what he's called me to do. And just because there's people out there that need brain surgery doesn't mean I'm supposed to go become a brain surgeon. Now, if you're in that place and you're feeling like you are a slave to the needs around you, I hope that statement sets you free. I really do. I hope that you feel a little bit of freedom in this moment that you meet, you're telling me it's okay, A, for me to rest, and B, that just because there's a crisis doesn't mean I have to be the one that responds to it. That's what you're telling me? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But we have this other story here where this woman is now faced with a second statement where she could choose to become offended very easily. Most of us wouldn't have made it past the front door when Jesus refused to answer. We would have walked away and, and gone back to our friends and said, that Jesus, he doesn't really love people. I mean, I came with this need and he didn't meet it and he doesn't care. That Jesus, don't even go talk to him. He's just a bag of wind. That's the kind of narrative that we could create simply because he wouldn't drop what he was doing to help us in that very moment. And then Jesus drops this statement. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She had an opportunity there to take offense by her choice, but instead she chose to put on humility, and she does something very different. It says, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. That's an interesting thing to do. This guy is ignoring me, and then he's making these statements that he's not sent to help people like me, and now I'm going to bust through the door, bust through the disciples, kneel at his feet, and beg him to help me. That's a sign of humility, is it not? She could have been prideful, but let me ask you the question. If she would have put on pride, her daughter would have died with a demon. Or she could put on humility and go kneel before the Lord and receive what she was asking for from the first place. So if you don't believe me, I just proved it to you several different ways. Now it gets even better. Because as she's kneeling at his feet in a position of humility, in verse 26 it says, And Jesus answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, I want to say it again. That statement Jesus makes, it's not right to throw the, bread, the children's bread to throw it to the dogs. Wow, that doesn't sound very Christ-like either. I, I don't know about you. I, I want to talk to the men in this room. Have you ever found a woman that enjoys being called a dog or any variation of the word that means dog? Because if you have, I haven't found one. And I'm not sure that Jesus was uh, in, uh, intending to insult this woman, but this woman had an opportunity to take offense. 
You cannot argue with the Bible that that's what he said. He said it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, referring to her. That doesn't sound very Christ-like. And before we try to make all these weird exceptions and things, I want to give you just a little bit of information that might help you understand this for some of us for the very first time. Because how many of you would be honest and say, I've read this a bunch of times and I kind of just pass over it because I don't know what to do with it. Any hands? All right, I'm glad. Oh, there we got two. Anyone else? I just don't know what to do with it. There's another hand. I don't know what to do with this because this doesn't seem Christ-like. It doesn't seem like the Jesus you would paint the picture of and hang it on the wall. This seems very different that Jesus is creating opportunity for this woman to become offended, and yet she keeps pressing through. So what did Jesus mean? Some people, they do uh, theological gymnastics to try to get around this, and I'm saying, uh, no, you don't have to do it. Take it for what it says and what what he meant. He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. You don't need to do gymnastics around this, but there is one piece of information I'm going to give you that might help you understand why he said what he said. In the Greek, there's two words for dog. There's one word that is the insult. That's what they would call the Canaanites or people they didn't like. There's another word for dog. It's kunerion. That's the word Jesus uses here. And instead of it being the insult, you dirty dog or you son of a, that's not that one, he's saying, Oh, little fluffy. You know, how many of you have a dog at home? How many of you have a big dog at home? Colton has a dinosaur. How many of you would go home and cook a steak dinner and offer it to your dog first? If you raise your hand right now, I'm just letting you know I have availability for counseling appointments next Friday. We'll get your mind right because you crazy. If you cook a steak dinner and you offer it to your dog first, you're a whack job. And what we need to understand is that that doesn't mean you don't love your dog. It doesn't mean you don't love little fluffy, little fluffikins that's sitting there being all cute. What it means is you eat first and you give the leftovers to fluffy, right? How many of us, you eat something and then you let fluffy have the leftovers? Oh, fluffy. And I'm curious because... I, I, don't, I can't prove this, but I'm very curious because Jesus was in the house sitting. I'm curious if he was sitting at the table, and I think there was probably a little dog sitting right next to him. And I think he was using the opportunity and what was in the room to make a demonstration. You love your dog at home, right? I, I think many of you, if your dog died today, it would feel like you lost a member of your own family. So was Jesus saying, I don't love you? No. But what he was saying is, I came first for the house of Israel and second for the rest of the world. The time has not yet come for me to minister to the Gentile world. So it would be wrong for me to take what I was given in this season to give it to someone else that it wasn't intended for yet. Does that help a little bit? that help you break that down just a little bit? Because he wasn't saying, you dirty, awful dog of a woman. What he was comparing her to was little fluffy. Little fluffykin sitting right there. But she could have very easily still taken that as a great offense. 
Because like I said earlier, I don't think there's a woman on this planet that enjoys being compared to a dog of any kind. And so when he made this comparison, she has an opportunity once again to become offended by what Jesus had said. But instead she said, I acknowledge your mission statement. I acknowledge, Jesus, that you were sent first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But then she clarifies what she means. I don't actually need you to come to my house because the dog will eat even the crumbs that fall from the table. I just need a little bit, just a little bit. You don't have to divert from your mission. You don't have to come over here and set up a church to the Gentiles. I I know you're coming to them first and then to us. I just need this much. And Jesus responds, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now I'm going to close with this. With a question. This woman, at any point in this story, had opportunity to pick up offense by choice. To pick up pride by choice. I'm a woman. Who does he think he is talking to me like that? She could have done any of that garbage that we hear today. Who does he think he is? Instead, she chose humility. And her daughter was free from a demonic spirit because of it. So ladies and gentlemen, I ask you one more time. Will you acknowledge that you have the choice to take off things that block the blessings of God and to put things on that open the door? Can you imagine what that was like for the disciples watching this entire exchange happen? You see, Jesus is the best multitasker ever. And I can't imagine what that was like for the disciples who probably even used the wrong version of dog to describe people like this woman in the passage. To watch her being lifted up, to watch her being cheered on and encouraged by their teacher saying, this Canaanite woman, two strikes right there, has great because she kept on pressing through instead of creating a narrative in her head that kept her from getting to Jesus. Instead, she just kept going and kept choosing humility along the way. So if it's our choice for the things that we put on, the things that we take off, the question that I have for you today is this. Would you examine your own heart and at least ask the question, have I closed doors that God wanted to minister to me through simply because I didn't like the vessel that he chose? I didn't like the person that he chose. I don't want to receive from them. Would you be honest with yourself and re-examine your heart so that you can choose humility, you can choose to break that pride and say, Lord, if you choose to minister to me through my spouse, I receive it. If you choose to minister to me through someone that's younger than me, less qualified than me, I choose to receive it because what I really want is you. I really want you, Jesus. 
And sometimes God may choose to answer your prayers through someone that will test your heart to see if you're even humble to receive what you've been asking for. Is it possible that we have missed blessings and answers to our prayers that God did send simply because we chose to be prideful instead of putting on humility? And even if we've made that mistake, we don't have to keep making that mistake. We can choose by our choice to set our mind on things above, to take off anger, malice, greed, sexual impurity, put on love, humility, and become a part of the choir that makes a perfect harmony to the God that we love. Would you mind bowing your heads and closing your eyes? Father, we come before you. And first, we repent of all the times you were answering our prayers. But we chose pride. We chose not to receive it from the vessels you chose to send. We ask your forgiveness of that today, Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us to take this pride off and to never pick it up again. That every day we live, we would strive to become more humble, more like you, Jesus. To become more like the image of whom created us. Father, let us be people that are slow to pick up offense, but consistently choose to refuse to pick it up. We refuse to pick up offense, even if someone's attempting to offend us. Lord, we want to put on love that brings us into harmony with the person on our left, the person on our right, as we seek after you with all of our heart. So, Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to see how you are answering prayers that all of us have prayed that we would choose to be humble to receive from how you're deciding to answer those prayers. And Lord, today, if there's anyone that's already taken offense at these words, I pray that you would just pluck that from their hearts, that they could hear what is really being said and open up their hearts to release that pride and choose to be humble. That we would not be a, a prideful, stiff-necked people, but instead a people that are servant-hearted and humble. Lord, you alone deserve all the glory, the honor, and the praise. And we give it all to you. In Jesus' name, I ask that you would bless every single person here, that you would cut off every assignment of the enemy. In Jesus' name. Lord, today, open our ears and our hearts, Holy Spirit, to hear your voice. And give us the faith to follow you with all of our hearts. Jesus' name, amen.